Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is me. I'm going to answer listener questions about all kinds of things, including quantum computing, and war, fiat money, morality, Christianity, and anything. I asked for all kinds of questions and I got them. Hopefully you will enjoy this episode. All right, how's it going, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. I am going to do listener questions. I do do these once in a while, usually when uh, you know one of my guests like delays or something like that, and I have to kind of scramble. And this is how I uh, usually end up doing these shows uh, with listener questions. But they are re relatively popular, so I do want to get to them and. Uh, this time I did a post uh, that I would take questions about anything, not not even Bitcoin related. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what questions you guys came up with. I did look at some of them, but not all of them. And I will try to answer all of them unless they're obviously trollish or trying to promote a scam or something like that. All right. So um, these are these two were uh, from YouTube, uh, but it says uh the morning show i guess asks i was shocked to see how many ethereum nodes exist i had assumed that uh, bitcoin had the most users running the software could you speak on the differences between bitcoin full nodes and ethereum full nodes well the thing about ethereum full nodes is um they're all like by one provider it's in fura it's on amazon and uh you kind of have to trust that they are running it properly because uh, most people don't have the skills to run an ethereum node i mean it's it's many terabytes of data at this point and you have to essentially um you know have some serious specs on your computer to catch up because you know uh, a lot of disk writes and stuff it's bottlenecked there and um, you know, the the num number of blocks are going faster than your computer can actually validate them. So uh, what a lot of people end up doing is using some sort of fast forward or checkpointing. Um, this is where you just assume that things up to a certain block number are valid and then just kind of go from there, which is uh, a cheat. You're not really validating everything. And that's that's the whole point of running a full node. It's validating that everything is fine and that you are verifying for yourself that the software does what it's supposed to but because ethereum's like changed its rules just so many times it's like uh you know hard fork after hard fork after hard fork and each of those introduces new things it, the software gets enormously complicated uh, not to mention like it, they have an account based system and not a utxo based system and uh, it's it's very memory intensive and having to calculate everything properly um, is very difficult. This is why people don't know what the actual supply of Ethereum is, is because it, it's changed a bunch of times and the architecture just isn't very good for auditing, which is actually the whole point of blockchain. So, um, you know, like if you count Infura, I imagine there's like a decent number of Ethereum nodes, uh, but you know, I mean, it's all by one company. So you're essentially trusting a third party to provide you blockchain data. You might as well be using like a block explorer or something at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, for for most people, it's uh, 
you know, I, I would say there there aren't that many Ethereum full nodes uh, running and the requirements are enormously high. All right. Uh, the other question I don't really understand, so I'm not going to cover it. All right. Here are some questions uh, from Mastodon. Um, this is BitcoinHackers.org. I, I do have a presence there and I retweet everything there. Just uh, all right. Um, what am I wearing? I am currently wearing a shirt and shorts. Um, I, I have a slate of Bitcoin shirts that I rotate. Um, you know, in the comfort of my own home uh, when I am out and about and on stage or at different events and things like that. I generally wear a button down shirt and jeans and a cowboy hat and, uh, you know, a belt uh, with, a, a, you know, some sort of dragon symbol on the buckle and some boots. Um, that's usually what I wear. Um, and the reason I do that is because I really do love the 1800s. Um, you know, uh, cowboy era where it was all about expansion and looking outward and uh, building something. And that that's where the U.S. went from a backwater British colony to uh, a world superpower in about 100 years on the backs of people that were, you know, in, in, you know, in large, many ways, like self-made men and self-made women. So, um, you know, that that's why I wear what I wear. I'm, I'm not sure that was the actual intent of the question. It did sound a little trollish, but I chose to answer it the way I chose to answer it. All right. Uh, when do you think quantum computing will pose a threat to cipher integrity and what will crypto do to counter it? I don't think it's going to pose a threat for a long time. And this is because even if... Uh, you know, you do get certain types of quantum computers. Uh, they, they're not going to be very fast. Um, you, ha you have to understand that the processes involved are just insane. Like you have to keep atoms at like, uh, you know, nano degrees above absolute zero in order to get some sort of like weird quantum states that you can actually measure. Um, and there's a lot of error involved. So there's a lot of error correction and things like that. And you have to run uh, these calculations uh, many different times uh, and you know even doing it one time is very very difficult and uh, you know the media likes to make it sound as if we're on the verge of a quantum breakthrough but um, vast majority of the things that are actually going on in quantum computing is mostly marketing um, you know the the companies that sponsor the quantum computing research uh, you know, they, they're big companies and you have big departments and a lot of politics going on. And you have a lot of these people that are in these R&D departments that want to show that they're actually making progress, even when they're, they aren't. So I don't think you can really trust what they're actually saying about the progress of quantum, because, of course, they're going to say, oh, in five years, we're going to have something amazing. Uh, it's always like that uh, with, uh, with, with with these R&D departments. Otherwise, like they wouldn't exist. If, if you said, hey, we're not going to make anything useful for the next 10 years, the company would shut them down. So um, I, I don't think it's uh, it's really posing a threat for a long time. I, I don't think quantum computers are inevitable. It's like cold fusion. You know, a lot of people thought that it was inevitable in the 80s that we would have this amazing energy source that anyone could do using fusion. If you watch like Back to the Future 2, this is like a part of the plot is, you know, they have Mr. Fusion, which they bring from the future. And it's, uh, you know, a cheap energy source that any, anyone can use. Um, Reality is not like that, right? Like there, there's no way we're getting cold fusion any in any of our lifetimes. It's just too difficult. And quantum computing is very much like that. 
um, and you know, like it's it's just not happening. Uh, let's just put it that way. And I'd be very surprised if it does. Of course, I could be proven wrong. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, like whenever the media gets behind something, that's when, you know, it's probably not going to happen. Um, that's that's just, uh, you know, they're they're not very good at like sort of uh, inducing research breakthroughs. Uh, generally, those happen in the background, uh, not by the famous people, but by, you know, people that are willing to try all kinds of different stuff and things. Um, this this isn't a project that's really readily available to the amateur. And th those are the people that actually make the breakthroughs typically. Um, it, it's only available to people that can get access to like, you know, a Faraday cage in like absolute zero near uh, with, with atoms that are operating at near absolute zero and so on. It's 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 just not happening. I, I really don't think so. All right. Uh, mind mining asks, how do we need to allow the government to take part of our wealth stored in Bitcoin when taxes were uh, paid on the money to buy Bitcoin or the equipment to mine it? The government had no part in creating, maintaining or structuring Bitcoin, yet they want a claim on it when it becomes more and more successful. Since Bitcoin is money, there should be no additional tax on it like gold in the Netherlands. Do you see any possible reason for taxing Bitcoin? Well, I, I'm kind of against taxes in general. Um, you know, they're, they're there as like a way for the government to steal money from you without your consent. I mean, if you agree to it or whatever, you know, I, I suppose in some way that's OK. But uh, in a sense, like, uh, you know, taxing Bitcoin or taxing any like sort of capital gains, it's taxing it twice because you had to earn it first and then you have to pay taxes on the money you've earned on the money that you've earned. So it's uh, and, you know, if you lose it, they don't suddenly give you like a giant deduction. You're limited in the uh, in the deduction you're allowed to take because you lost money. Uh, so it, it's uh, it's sort of like a one way street and it's um, you know, it's not very good for productivity. Um, so I, I don't think uh, I mean, the reason for taxing Bitcoin is because the government wants revenue and wants to punish people that own Bitcoin and so on. Um, they do a lot of stealth taxation through inflation anyway, and that's sort of their preferred way to go about it. Uh, though for appearances sake, they have to uh, tax in other ways as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's just I don't think it's legit. I don't think it's moral. Uh, how do you tax free speech and what ha will happen to free speech, uh, you know, uh, if we allow this as a society to happen? Uh, is one number taxable, but another number not? I mean, I mean, I think you're essentially, uh, you know, making the argument that Bitcoin is speech. And this is like sort of like one of those tenuous arguments that everyone makes uh, around anything that they want to support is that it, it ends up being free speech. I don't think you need to go that far. It's just unjust uh, to tax period. I mean, it's, um, you know, like uh, tariffs and uh, customs duties and things like that. And that sort of makes sense because you don't want certain things entering your borders. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, it, like common defense and things like that need to be funded so that it, that that kind of makes sense. And that's how, uh, you know, the U.S. funded U.S. federal government funded itself for a long time. Um, but, yeah, I don't think you need to go out to, hey, it's free speech. Therefore, it's uh, it's bad. I, you can make arguments all you want, but the government's going to do what they want to do. Um, I, I don't think these uh, arguments really make that much of a difference. Um, you know, ultimately, arguments, um, you know, are arguments. It's uh, it, it's kind of a 
government does what it wants to do. And it's a very sort of authoritarian, uh, dark way to look at things. But that's kind of how it is right now. Um, and it's been for the past year and a half. How much of a headache would it cost Bitcoin development if GitHub were to begin censoring cryptocurrency related repositories? I don't think it would be that much of a headache, actually. Um, like uh, Git is meant to be sort of distributed and so on. Um, in fact, if you have a full history of, uh, of a Git repository, uh, like anytime you clone from GitHub, you have a full history of the Git repository and anyone else can clone directly from you as long as you're willing to run a server. It's just that we've made it kind of centralized because it's convenient and you can do code reviews easier and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you would lose some of those, but you know, there are alternatives. Uh, GitLab, for example, has a hosted version that you can run locally. I'm sure somebody would do something uh, like that or the equivalent thereof where you're um, you're running a Git server. Uh, and I believe I think Vladimir Vandalon has uh, has uh, is hosting it over Tor. So like if GitHub ever goes down, you can just uh, go clone from there and all the core devs know where that is. And it's part of the email list. And there are other channels in which you can get that information and so on. So um, I don't think it would be that big of a deal. Um, you know, Git and Bitcoin kind of have some parallels. If you understand how Git works, um, it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, the way Bitcoin works. Like there there's a hash that points to a previous hash and so on, much like uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Each block points to a previous one. Uh, but instead of a single chain that's sort of authoritative, um, with uh, with Git, you can have many, many branches and merge them back into the middle and so on as people work on it. So a lot of, uh, you know, there there's some similarities there. And, uh, and you know, it, it's supposed to work in a, a, a distributed way. And it, it very well could be decentralized if need be. Um, it, it's just that everyone would have to run their own Git server, which is, uh, to be fair, like available on any Linux distro where you can, uh, you know, uh, run a Git server. Um, of course, you have to open certain ports and let other people know about it so they can clone from your repository instead of, um, you know, GitHub or whatever. But it's entirely possible. And, um, you know, I, that that would be actually a really cool project for Umbral or Start9 or any of these like node companies to do is, uh, you know, host a Bitcoin core repo on your local machine as well and make it available to other people so that they can go clone it and always sort of like keeping it up to sync. It's it's not that different than syncing the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, and, you know, it's it's probably a lot less uh, data because uh, there's just much less code than there is the blockchain. So it would be it would be interesting and we could certainly do it and it would, uh, uh, you know, probably make uh, the network a lot more resilient to, um, you know, uh, single points of failure like uh, GitHub. Uh, but, yeah, it's not a single point of failure, at least as big, uh, far as Bitcoin is concerned, because we have that. All right. Great question. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's take a look at the Twitter questions. Uh, how is life at the moment? Well, life is pretty good. I, I, I'm enjoying myself and, you know, uh, you know, uh, spending a lot of time with my family and things like that over the summer. So that, that was really good. Um, Bitcoin is obviously doing well. So, you know, a lot of the, you know, financial stuff that I, I think I would otherwise be worrying about, I'm not really worrying about. So, Life is very, very good, and it is amazing, and I'm very grateful that I get to 
you know, do stuff like this, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, record a podcast on listener questions and, uh, you know, write newsletters and books and, uh, you know, teach people Bitcoin. Um, it's, it's, I have to say, it's not a bad life. Emacs, Vim, Nano, Kakone, or Ed. Um, I, I am an Emacs user. Um, I used to use the predecessor of Nano, Pico, uh, back in college for email. And that's actually how I got into Emacs is that a lot of the short keyboard shortcuts are similar. Uh, by the way, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, these are uh, programming editors or uh, like code editors that a lot of people use. Uh, for people that use IDs and so on, they have a specific ID that they have, like Visual Studio or something or uh, you know something else. Um, I'm very anti-IDE. I think they're a crutch and I think you should debug everything on command line or something like that. And that's usually what I try to do. Um, I am an Emacs user. Um, and yeah, I do realize it's a little more bloated than Vim. Um, I, I have, I do know how to do certain things in Vim. And at some point I do want to learn Vim a, a little more because it is so lightweight and, uh, you know, less, um, you know, costly in terms of memory usage and things like that. Uh, but that said, you know, I, I know a lot of stuff in Emacs and it's very convenient. And uh, there there's a whole bunch of stuff in Emacs that you can do that I don't know about. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I have had to go in there and, you know, uh, adjust the list code because I wanted to edit remote files like directly and things like that. I, I, I've done that before and uh, it's very, very convenient. So I, I continue to use Emacs, although, you know, I think Vim is fine. Uh, Nano is a little too weak for me. And, uh, you know, there I, I don't know what Kakone is or I, I, I haven't. I feel like I've used Ed before, but I, I don't know. All right. How's Graftroot and cross input signature aggregation going? And are they on track for the next soft fork? Uh, good question. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if Graftroot is really coming. Um, you know, Taproot, I think, uh, will get us most of the features that we want. Um, uh, Cross-input signature aggregation, I, I think a lot of us would like to see because it will expand the anonymity set for uh, pretty much every transaction, uh, uh, you know, like making it like uh, a, a few large transactions per block instead of, you know, lots of little transactions that you can track and so on. Um, that said, like, I think any prev out is the next thing that people want. Uh, that said, I, I, I've, I've heard the argument that, you know, like maybe we should let the protocol ossify. Maybe, uh, we don't need another soft fork and I'm starting to become a little more sympathetic to that view. Um, I, I, I get that there are features that we want and so on, but there are other layers above Bitcoin for a reason. And th those can um, effectively add all sorts of features that you can't necessarily add in the first layer because you know changing anything in the first layer is difficult and should be difficult. And uh, you know it, it's for that reason that we have uh, you know Bitcoin has the credibility that it does now, uh, whereas you know all these other chains that you know change everything every two, three, six months or whatever, um, you know they they don't have the credibility because they're constantly changing the rules. And you know eventually one of the rules that they'll change is the supply and so on. So um, you know they might deny it, but it's always a possibility if you're willing to hard fork. So I I think. Um, you know, uh, the, I, I would like uh, cross-input signature aggregation in particular because it is sort of incentivizing coin joins, which I think a lot more people will do. 
Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's, uh, you know, the, the privacy stuff is, uh, you know, much better suited to Lightning and other layers, maybe on, even on top of that, that I think, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if even another soft fork is completely necessary. That said, if there's something that the community agrees on and so forth, you know, I, I definitely support it, especially if the benefits are clear and so on. But, um, you know, at this point, I'm not sure. All right. Um, I've seen you write quite a bit about the visual arts and its decline on a fiat standard. When you walk into museums and galleries, do you find there what you think many artists today are lack lacking? Yeah, I, I, I find uh, modern art to be crap. I don't know. What, what can I say? None of it inspires me. And, and you know, the uh, essay I pointed to in this uh, this week's newsletter, uh, which um, which is a literary critique of uh, um, you know, uh, a story, uh, a short story about Weimar Germany, uh, based in Weimar Germany, uh, pointed out this fact that, you know, art began as a representation of the real, right? Like, and that, that, that was what art was. Um, when you drew a picture, it was of something that already existed. Um, you know, it, it's essentially turned into a simulacrum. It, it's, it, it copied the original idea, but you know, it got less and less representational over time, I, starting with the Impressionists and going all the way to, you know, Picasso and, uh, er, er, you know, the postmoderns and, and so on. It got less and less about actual reality and more and more about sort of unreality. It's it's no it no longer resembles anything. It's a, it's a copy without an original. Um, so I, I don't find that that compelling. It, uh, I, I find representational things to be interesting and, uh, uh, you know, different. But like modern art has no meaning whatsoever. There's no anchor in reality. And I, I really just don't like it. I, I, I think it's uh, a, a lot of it is just kind of gross. Um, it's, uh, you know, when I, when I look at, uh, you know, like a weird Picasso painting, I don't sit there and go, wow, that's beautiful. I actually say that looks like my kid drew it. Or when I look at a Jackson Pollock painting, it just looks like a bunch of sprinkles, uh, on, on a, on a canvas. It's like, it doesn't mean anything. It's, uh, it's abstract represent. It's a representation of a representation of a representation and it's it's so abstract that it can mean whatever uh, you know they they want it to mean, and it, it at that point it's completely meaningless. So, I I think uh, the the thing that these artists lack is, you know, actual reality in their paintings. And if it has no nothing real in it, then why the hell are we looking at it? So you know that's my opinion. Uh, Satoshi Cat asks why, um, and I will answer because um, you know it, it is kind of a. Uh, a profound question in the sense that uh, the, this is uh, the unanswerable ultimate cause kind of uh, kind of question. Like uh, you can sort of ask why uh, in an infinite regress and you, you never get to anything satisfactory. And, you know, I, I remember doing this when I was little, right? Just I would ask why to each question. Uh, if you ever watch Animaniacs, there was a little kid that kept doing that. It's like, why, why? And then, and then the person would give up and say, I don't know, kid. And, she, and she'd say, okay, thank you. I love you. Goodbye. Bye. Something like that. And, uh, it, it, it does have sort of like an in, infinite regress nature to it. And I think that's kind of part of reality. It's that there is, um, a sense of 
uh, needing to go back to an ultimate cause. And it, uh, ultimately, you have to settle on an uncaused cause. Um, and if you're Christian, that's what you call God. And you can figure out some properties on it if you uh, if you do some philosophical analysis on it, uh, which uh, for some reason, a lot of people just do not do and are not interested in, uh, even if uh, they are they say they are interested in it. Uh, this is the you know uh, the playground of philosophy um, you know what Aristotle and Plato would call metaphysics um, this is this is what you're supposed to think about okay what what is the nature of reality and so on anyway thank you for the profound question uh, zone fog uh, build a citadel or stay put I feel sometimes that we can evangelize best like Christ if we walk with the no coiners and pre coiners. Um, yeah, uh, build a citadel or stay put. I, I mean, it really depends, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, like I, I found that if I talk about Bitcoin to people that are uninterested, they're never really going to get convinced. Uh, similar about my Christianity, right? Like if I talk to people about Christ that are not interested, it, it doesn't really do anything. Um, the people that it does impact are the people that are kind of interested and you sort of open an avenue for that conversation. Um, and usually they, uh, you know, you do need to sort of like randomly encounter them, but sometimes they'll they'll ask to meet with you and, so, and, and things like that and bring up the conversation themselves. So I don't think it's all that difficult, uh, you know, to evangelize. And it's, it's not evangelism necessarily uh, it, like, you know, like sort of making the, uh, analogy between Bitcoin and uh, Christianity. Uh, it's it's not necessarily converting the people because that's not Christ what Christ said to do. It's it's more about getting them to be disciples or people that are obedient to Christ. That that's a very different thing, um, and I, I think that should be the goal for Bitcoiners as well. It's not get, getting people to understand Bitcoin necessarily. It's getting them to you know buy it and hold it and understand you know not not just understand what Bitcoin is but actually do something with it so that it actually betters their life. Um, and oftentimes uh, you know a lot of people don't want to better their lives and that's uh, that's the reality of uh, of a lot of people's lives. They like being in misery and they'd rather hold on to the grudges or pride that they have rather than. Uh, you know, the freedom that comes from Bitcoin and, um, you know, similar thing can be said about Christians, too. Right. Like uh, like, you know, there are people that don't want to, you know, uh, learn about Christ or whatever because they'd rather hold on to something. At least that's my opinion. All right. All right. Hundredfold impact asks. Um, I noticed Microsoft Excel calculates accurate accurately to 15 significant Digits. Is this related in any way to why there are eight decimals in Bitcoin? Uh, yeah. So the you know any any computer is going to have trouble with floating point uh, calculations uh, because uh, they're not easily representable in binary. So you, especially like base ten, if you do like ten point five. Um, that's uh, that that's a repeating decimal in in binary, right? Like because point five. Well, no, ten point five would be not not be. It would be like ten point three, something like that. That 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 would be an infinite uh, decimal. Um, so anything with uh, with floating point is is not going to have necessarily a very um, very uh, accurate calculation just because. There are, uh, you know, you, you have to carry, uh, like, you have to make sure that 
um, everything is accurate and that you're holding enough digits and so on. And there, there are languages which allow sort of that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it blows up after a while. Like if, you, if you're using floating point math and you're multiplying, you know, numbers with like a lot of uh, decimals, then, you know, you're, you're going to get uh, to keep that, uh, you know, level of uh, accuracy, assuming all the numbers are completely accurate. Um, you're going to have to go further and further to the right in terms of number of decimal points. So, um, you know, at, at least with uh, most computer science things, you want to keep them discrete. That is, uh, you know, whole numbers. And th those are much easier for computers to handle. So in the case of Bitcoin, the way uh, Satoshi Nakamoto made it is, you know, one Bitcoin is 100 million Satoshis, but Satoshis are the base unit. So you, you can essentially treat everything as an integer just by multiplying by 100 million for, a, a, you know, per Bitcoin or whatever. Um, and in fact, there's no concept of Bitcoin. Um, it, it was a convention that Satoshi made. Um, in the protocol itself, it's just Satoshis and uh, the limit is 200, uh, 210 quadrillion uh, Satoshis, not 21 uh, or 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, not 21 million Bitcoin. Um, and that's uh, that that's how it works. Uh, but hey, the the number of decimal, uh, it's not uh, it's not well, the number of uh, digits in there is uh, it can't fit in eight bytes uh, in four bytes. Uh, so it's uh, fit into eight bytes, which allows you to get to two to the 64th, which is, um, you know, equivalent to like 183 billion uh, Bitcoins or you know, uh, whatever that that times a hundred million sat, uh, for a number of sats. So, um, you know, the number of significant digits is uh, is is like that in Bitcoin because you work with discrete numbers, which are a lot easier to work with. Um, you know, Microsoft Excel, uh, you know, does does something completely different, uh, and you know, it's because a floating point map is hard for computers. Let's just put it that way. Uh, hey, Bitcoiners, how exactly does Bitcoin fix some company like Nestle that pillages all the water in a community for their own profit? Um, so I think on their Bitcoin standard, you have uh, more specific property rights. Uh, now, it is possible for the government to own the river and then give rights to that river or like not care about it, you know what's actually happening in that river, like in this Nestle case. Right. It, uh, the problem is with public property. Um, as soon as like the river is considered public, then uh, everybody owns it, which means that no one owns it. And that means that Nestle is going to pollute it or use it to their advantage, which is exactly what's happening in something like that. Uh, but when you have uh, private property, if you know, uh, certain people own parts of the river and you pollute the river and your part of the river gets polluted, well, you're going to sue. And that's that that's how, you know, you you get them to not pollute the river. Um, once it's no longer a public resource and it's a private resource, then it becomes a problem uh, for the uh, for whoever actually owns that property. Um, and that and that that's how things get resolved is is through, you know, essentially some sort of conflict resolution if uh, somebody is taking advantage of somebody else's property. So um, uh, now how does that come about because of a Bitcoin standard? Well, um, you know, you can still have democracy and things like that. And, uh, you know, large states that own large tracts of land or whatever. But my personal feeling is that uh, there will be smaller states and they'll, uh, you know, more or less not own that much. Right. The, the concept of public stuff is uh, a little bit 
odd uh, because it, we all kind of own it, but no one owns it. But it's really owned by, you know, the people in power, but they don't really own it because they're only in power for a short amount of time in most countries and so on. So it, it's kind of a, a, a strange thing. Uh, so I, I think with uh, with Bitcoin, it, it leads towards a more rational uh, you know, policy of, you know, having more pri private property, including, you know, rivers and things like that. Uh, will you be taking the death needle? No. Uh, what do you think of CoinJoin and do you do it? I don't currently use CoinJoin. Um, I don't think the anonymity sets are large enough and um, I don't I don't really need it at the moment, though, of course, like the 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 time to do it is uh, now rather than later. I don't know. The the protocols uh, like uh, generally require, um, you know, specific amounts of Bitcoin and things like that. I, I haven't found one that's user friendly and anonymizes sufficiently with a large en enough uh, anonymity set. So I don't, I don't really do it yet. Uh, what's the word on biomechanics of health? Um, yeah, I'm not sure what that question is. All right. What are your favorite books on Christianity? Um, I, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, so I think Mere Christianity is one of my favorite books, but pretty much I've read everything by him. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, those books are amazing. Uh, the Great Divorce, Abolition of Man, uh, The Four Loves, A Grief Observed, um, you know, surprised by joy, like just there, there's so many really good books written by him and he writes in a very clear style. And if you have read him and have read some of my books, hopefully you could see some resemblance because I I try to keep his style of using simple language to describe stuff with a lot of clarity. Um, you know, other books that I, I, I've read that I've really liked, uh, you know, I, I, I like the you know older stuff, uh, you know, um, I, I have tried to get into like Aquinas with uh, Summa Theologica. Um, that's a very dense book and very technical, but I, I do appreciate it whenever I can understand it. I, I can't understand all of it because a lot of the arguments are fairly technical from a philosophical point of view. Um, you know, there uh, other Christian authors. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate some of the popular ones that have gone out. Um, you know, I, there, there's a lot of people that write, uh, you know, popular uh, Christian books. Um, you know, uh, I think I've read uh, I, I, I've read a lot of them, right? Like, um, uh, you know, Tim Keller and Andy Stanley and many, many others. Uh, I, I've at least heard of them or read some of the summaries or something like that. Uh, you know, that said, I, I like the older stuff and I, I like going back to the source, the Bible, um, that, that, that for me is a, a lot easier to, uh, comprehend, uh, instead of, you know, trying to learn from other people. I, that said, you know, there, there are good books that are coming out that sort of analyze different things and, um, uh, give you, uh, sort of insight into what the Bible verses say. So I like those too. So, uh, but yeah, C.S. Lewis, definitely. Um, Thoughts on the El Salvador Bitcoin economy? Um, I, I think it's great because uh, now if you're uh, if you want to start a business in El Salvador, you don't need banking services. You just run a lightning node and uh, and you, you get to work, right? Like you, you get a lightning uh, wallet on your phone and you start selling your goods and services um, and you can take payment and so on. And it's great. It, 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 it works uh very well and this is sort of like the least friction you don't need government permits you don't need government permission um and that that's oftentimes the thing stopping a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs is sort of like go government interference um 
And this is what will probably help build uh, the El Salvadorian economy. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's great that Bitcoin is uh, sort of helping there. We'll, we'll be watching pretty closely. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that the president there supports it, though I don't think it was necessary. Um, all right. What is your favorite high time preference architecture? Ancient, megalithic, renaissance, etc. I, I mean, I... I think what you mean is low time preference architecture, stuff that has lasted. I really like, uh, you know, uh, like the Vatican. I think it looks absolutely gorgeous. The, the you know, the building itself um, and of course, like all the statues in there. And, uh, you know, I, I believe Michelangelo was the architect on, on that one. And, you know, the Sistine Chapel, like going in there was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, just uh, seeing how amazing that art was that that to me is like the high point of art like it, it, you you really like saw just how talented an artist michelangelo was and like just the you know when you're in there like just the the figures just almost pop out at you like it, it's it, like it, it's painted in such a way uh that it's very clear um uh, that michelangelo knew like absolutely everything about angles and light and everything else to to make these uh these uh, you know um uh, frescoes come to life and uh and, and for me like you know you know he brings that to sort of the the architecture of the vatican um i i i do you know appreciate a lot of the churches uh that were built around that time not really into gothic uh per se um or uh, or some of the other ones but i i certainly like them a lot better than say a lot of the modern architecture um and the problem with a lot of modern architecture is they're they're built for the inside right like um they're not built for the outside they're not uh necessarily looking to have uh you know a uh you know 300 year time horizon because a lot of houses uh for example like get torn down every 20 30 years um Instead, it's, uh, you know, it's all about like the livability of the space. Um, you know, a lot of glass uh, is used. Uh, so so the people on the inside have a great view. Uh, but from the outside, it just sort of looks like nothing. It's almost like a mirage. It's a, it's a simulacrum almost. Um, so, yeah, I, I like, uh, you know, architecture that looks like something that, it, that that seems to have purpose and stuff. I haven't been to the Taj Mahal or the... Hagia Sophia or uh, many, many of these places where, you know, like I, I would love to see it. Um, but, you know, I, I would say like Renaissance is definitely my favorite, uh, possibly because I have seen it. And, uh, you know, I do appreciate like, you know, so much of the stuff in Rome that uh, that uh, accompanied that. All right. Uh, quantum computing thread I already covered that. If you could really know who Satoshi is, would you want to? That's a great question. I I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, first of all, like it depends like uh, like whether it's public or private. So um, by public, I mean, like, does everyone else know? Then, you know, I mean, I, it doesn't hurt anything for me to know. Right. Like it, it, at, at that point, it's just sort of like, OK, well, they, this person signed it. Great. Now we know who it is. Um, I, I think that person might uh, have a little bit too much of a say in the protocol decisions and stuff like that. So I think, um, you know, that that would be a potential danger. So I, I wouldn't want 
Satoshi to become public uh, for that reason, unless uh, you know it's clear that Satoshi is dead or something like that. Um, but uh, you know, if, if it's private, meaning that I'm like entrusted with the secret that it, uh, this person is Satoshi, I, I wouldn't want. It. I, I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to be a single point of failure there. I don't want to uh, be exposed. Uh, I, I I don't want the uh, attack surface for exposing Satoshi to be enlarged because of me. So I, I don't I don't think I would want want that. Uh, in the book of Genesis, do you think it's coincidence that Abel raised lambs for meat to eat and please God and Cain grew grains and did not get approval? Is that the Bible advising us all to be carnivore? Um, you know, I have heard this theory uh, before. I, I don't know if that's really biblical per se. I don't think it's, uh, say, Orthodox Christian or Jewish belief. Uh, but, you know, I, it is interesting that, um, you know, an animal is a much bigger sacrifice than grain, right? And uh, and that that's something that you have to recognize is that if you bring a lamb, um, a lamb is worth a lot more money than you know just some wheat or something like that, uh, and generally requires a lot more in the way of resources in order to raise. Um, so you know, I that that might be a part of that Cain and Abel story um, because Abel did. Uh, bring a sacrifice, uh, you know, for uh, of a lamb, whereas, you know, Cain, you know, brought some vegetables. So, um, you know, maybe it was a bigger sacrifice uh, by Abel. But, uh, you know, does that point to more carnivore meat eating? I, I don't know. Like, I, I do think that meat is more nutritious and there is some evidence, uh, even biblically, that that was the case. Uh, talk about ego, man, you guys are losing it. Yeah, po possibly. Um, you know, who cares though? Uh, recommendations and financial outlook for average family of four mid thirties. Um, yeah, I, uh, the financial outlook is a little bit grim because, uh, you know, at least, uh, a family right now is, has much less than, you know, a generation ago. It's uh, much harder to afford a house. Um, or even, you know, uh, a, a place to rent and things like that. Uh, you know, college tuition is, uh, is going through the roof. Healthcare costs are going up. Uh, but, the, you know, the good news is that we have Bitcoin. So there, there's, uh, there's some level of financial sanity in an insane market. Uh, and, you know, if you have Bitcoin, I think, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think, if you hold Bitcoin, I think you'll be okay. Um, but you know, if you're just sort of like trying to make your way in the world as a family of four, it's going to be fairly difficult, right? Uh, and you're you're going to have to work harder than your parents did, um, you and possibly your spouse or whatever. Um, and that that's that's going to be the case. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be harder to just sort of support your family and and so on. Um, so I, I don't envy your position. Unless you have Bitcoin, in which case, you know, things will probably be at least a little bit easier. Hypothetically speaking, why would someone understand Bitcoin first and then start uh, thinking it's divine intervention, begin to see both the world and one's faith from a different perspective? Ad asking for a friend, obviously. Well, first of all, like uh, we've been lied to about money all our lives. And that's what Bitcoin sort of exposes is that 
we did we did we were lied to about fiat money inflation and all of these other things and told that it wasn't theft when it actually was they they were lying for their own benefit right the powers that be um and you know you take that to sort of uh, that natural skepticism or the desire to verify and not trust into other spheres of your life and very quickly find out they've been lying to you in all sorts of other places. So uh, diet, for example, uh, they've been telling you that sugar is good, fat is bad. That's definitely not the case. Uh, that like cholesterol is the most important indicator and things like that. That's not the case. Uh, you know, you, you start looking into this stuff and you realize just, uh, you know, how much of it is just propaganda for the benefit of a few. Um, and, you know, it's it's very uh, easy to see and uh, like go from there to, OK, well, what else have they been lying to us about? You know, um, the sort of like dominant uh, worldview or the default worldview uh, these days is atheism. And it's like, OK, is that actually rational? Um, and thinking about because uh, it, it like it or not like atheism is very dark right like it's you have uh you know no purpose no meaning everything is just sort of random it's uh and you know i mean you might believe that's true but it's it's still kind of dark so you know you know in a sense it's like why why is this the default why 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 is this uh sort of like um the way we're uh more or less taught and that's uh, that's when you start thinking about some of this other stuff and asking questions. And if you if you actually honestly go and search out that stuff, I think you'll find that there are pretty good arguments for Christianity that not a lot of people really acknowledge. Um, you know, they they uh, tend to um, uh, see Bitcoin or not see Christianity as a straw man or it, from a straw man's perspective instead of what it actually is. And, you know, that that's kind of what happens. Now, there are people that think it's divine intervention, uh, possibly because it, it Bitcoin is just so good, right? Like it, it, it does sort of like remove a lot of the evils of uh, of the fiat monetary system. Um, and in a sense, you can say, OK, like there there's something that is very good about it and you know if uh if you believe as a christian that all good things come from god then yeah i mean in in, a, in that sense it would be divine intervention and um you know and of course that's going to uh cast a different perspective on everything what do you have against secret um i don't have that much against secret i mean it's just uh it's an altcoin and i don't think uh they're their bitcoin and yeah i mean they're trying something new they're trying to run it as a democracy but that's still governance and that's still a single point of failure so i don't, I don't think it's uh it, it's quote unquote decentralized how can you be sure that any wallet manufacturer hardware or software does not simply produce wallets that the manufacturers can steal how can you be sure that the audited open source software is running on those respective hardware wallets thanks jimmy and this song is done well, um, if you're, uh, yeah, so great question. Uh, how do you verify sort of like a hardware wallet? It's very difficult to, unless you happen to be like a hardware engineer and a software engineer and you can uh, look at the hardware, the software, the firmware and everything else. Um, but, uh, you know, the nice thing is like a lot of these things don't have an internet connection uh, unless you plug it in, right? Uh, 
And if you're running it offline, uh, like you have the option uh, definitely with like Trezor, Ledger and Cold Card, I believe, uh, where you're you're running the whole thing offline uh, and, you know, you sign things that way. Um, it's going to be very difficult for the manufacturer to steal, especially if you're generating your own seed, uh, which you can do in many ways. And uh, and all of these, uh, you know, have uh, some recovery thing that lets you do that now, you know. You can um, uh, you can write your own firmware and load it using uh, you know firmware loader and things like that, uh, but then you know it's it's hard to know. But uh, you know the that, uh, the way to sort of like go around that is use multisig. And if you have three or five and you have five different manufacturers, even if two of them are screwing you over and can coordinate and know which uh, devices you have, you're you're still kind of protected. So yeah. Uh, all right. Hi, Jimmy. Is it by design that Bitcoin is understood best and first from those who are in need and hardworking and then sold from those who don't deserve it to, or underappreciate it and then to be bought from those that understand it late when the price hits trillions? Uh, I'm amazed. Uh, well, I mean, people buy it when they finally understand it. Right. And I mean, Deserve is kind of a loaded word and, uh, it, you know, it, it comes from morality and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I don't know what your uh, you know, notion of cosmic justice is, but uh, but the people that did put in the work to go and understand it generally tend to buy it. But then again, it could be you bought it because your friend told you. Um, but, you know, depending on the depth of understanding, uh, you're going to hold uh, more if you're uh, you're going to hold more and longer if you really understand it versus if if you don't, in which case you might sell it and and do other stuff. Um, so it does sort of uh, reward virtue in that way. But I think all things in life are kind of like that, uh, you know, uh, unless, you know, uh, you know, fiat money comes in and sort of like uh uh, unbalances the scales or whatever um, and that that's sort of the nature of reality and that's what we call virtue is this thing that uh, you know allows you to navigate reality in a way that uh, that that's beneficial to reality itself and to yourself um, you know that that's what virtuous action is if you're lying all the time you're gonna, you're only really ultimately screwing yourself I mean you might screw other people over but you know it's your reputation that's going to um, uh, be damaged and so on. So in that way, uh, you know, Bitcoin accumulation does come down to some level of virtue. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that I wrote about many, uh, many years ago uh, about Bitcoin and virtue. And I looked at prudence, temperance, justice and fortitude. Go look those up if you're interested. I have one on a 51% attack. My understanding is if someone managed to secure 51% of hash power, it could produce a corrupted block. How do nodes react then? Could you walk through how the current protocol stops this and under what circumstances would it succeed, however unlikely? Well, what do you mean by corrupted block is the real question. If they create a block that the other nodes recognize as false, then even if you have 51% or even 99% of the network uh, or uh, of the hashing power, none of the other nodes will accept it, in which case it's not Bitcoin. It would be some hard fork of Bitcoin or something like that. And it would just instantly get rejected and wait for a miner that actually followed the rules. So, um, you know, if you're if you're mining something uh, and it's not valid, then it's it's kind of a non-starter. And this is one of the genius ways in which, you know, running a full node gives you a lot of self-sovereignty because you are checking every block 
to see if it follows the rules. And if it doesn't, even if it's made by a very powerful miner with 99% of the hash power, you reject it. And so does everybody else, as long as they're following the same rules as you. So uh, at that point, it would be very obvious that this, uh, this person either made a mistake or is malicious, in which case, you know, they would probably be disconnected from everybody else. And, you know, you would chug along with whatever hash power you have. The thing about a 51% attack is that uh, it allows you to double spend. So you can mine blocks that are perfectly valid, uh, but overwrite some other blocks. And that, that would be the way to attack. And that only really allows you to double spend your own coins um, and doesn't let you steal from everybody else or whatever. So, um, you know, that, that, that could certainly happen. And, uh, you know, maybe it does happen uh, once in a while with zero conf or whatever. But it, there's a very easy solution. You just uh, you just wait like a few confirmations and that give, each confirmation gives you significant amount of security. So, um, you know, I, 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 I think the protocol stops this just fine. You're running your full node and you check everything. And that's what everyone does. What does Jesus mean to you? Why? He is my Lord and Savior and I am dedicating my whole life to him and yeah, I, I, I believe that he came to save me from my sins. And I believe this because I believe it is true, uh, not because it makes me feel better or that it, uh, it, it it's a convenient fiction or anything like that, that atheists say. I, I say that because I believe it to be true. Uh, like this is uh, a description of reality and it's the thing that makes the most sense. Um, and from a very technical perspective, I'm a pretty technical person and I try to think about things uh, from first principles and so on. And if you do, and you're honest about it, I believe that you would come to Jesus too. So, um, but you know, but that, that, that's my opinion. Obviously not everyone shares that. So take that as you will. I'm in the dark about the programs or layers that will run on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Can you talk about that? Maybe point one in a direction to learn more about that. Yeah, learn about the Lightning Network. Um, Ethereum is completely useless. Um, it's, it's uh, well, I, I wouldn't say that. It, it is useful for running scams and so on. So, um, but on Lightning, uh, you know, Lightning Network is on top of Bitcoin. There's a lot of resources that you can go and look and learn about it. Um, so yeah. Is it going up or down tomorrow? Be careful if you're open to questions. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And that's that's the thing. Uh, I, I recently ha talked to somebody at the Bitcoin Standard Conference and they were like, I listened to your podcast. You know, the thing I like about your podcast is that you never mention price even once. Uh, and I, I didn't realize that I hadn't mentioned price. It wasn't like I was actively avoiding it. Uh, but, you know, I, that is something that I don't necessarily think that much about. I mean, I do know the price when I look at it, of course. Um, and I am excited when it is pumping and so on. Uh, but, you know, going up and down on a day to day basis, that's very, you know, high time preference thinking. I, I care about where it is five years from now. And, you know, so far it's done very, very well over the last five years and the five years before that and so on. So I think I think it's fine. Uh, I don't need to talk about that. What are your favorite on on-chain metrics for price signals? Um, I think Willie Wu has some, but again, I don't necessarily look at on-chain metrics for that sort of thing. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, I think stock to flow is the only thing that's ever made sense to me as far as predicting the price of Bitcoin from a fundamental perspective. Everything else is just sort of like, okay, here, here are some triangles and things like that. And, you know, I get it. There, there, there are sort of human cognitive biases that go into sort of price action that manifests itself. Uh, but that's, that's not, you know, what 
you know, I, why I invest in Bitcoin because of triangles or, you know, human cognitive biases. I invest in Bitcoin or I bought Bitcoin because I think it's better money and that it's better for me and better for you and everything else. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't look at on-chain metrics. Willie Wu does. I would suggest that you go and uh, seek out his many YouTube videos. Why is the volume on exchanges so low with the price going up? Uh, well, I mean, it used to be that, you know, trading one Bitcoin was like a few hundred dollars. Now one Bitcoin is like 50,000. So, you know, that that's uh, the volume naturally is going to be lower in Bitcoin terms. In dollar terms, you know, it, it just sort of heats up uh, as the bull market goes. Um, and I imagine it'll break all sorts of records soon enough. It's just uh, we're waiting for the the big bull run um and for for that to happen jimmy please talk about how fiat has ultimately led to war amongst humans how the current geopolitical state of the world is teetering on that line especially in the usa and how bitcoin is clearly our best shot at diminishing the effects of the potential mass chaos that could occur so here, here's the main argument. So wars existed, obviously, before fiat money. Um, and uh, people have been going to war for a long time. But the thing about war is that it is sort of like mutually assured destruction. So you have to have a really good reason to do it. And traditionally, the reason that people had to go to war was to, uh, you know, go get more resources. So uh, it's, it's easier, essentially, to go and steal from somebody else uh, than to produce your own stuff. And especially if you have a nice, juicy... Uh, you know, bounty, uh, and usually they take all of the resource or threaten to take all of the resources, and you know, you might get a negotiated settlement like a tribute or something like that. Um, uh, you know, or if uh, if they don't submit and you enter a siege or whatever, they end up selling everybody that uh, that they capture into slavery and things like that. Uh, you know, it was an economic decision essentially. It, it was okay if it costs more for me to go and conquer this territory. They they just wouldn't do it. It, it didn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, like of course, it's very hard to predict how much it was going to be. But you know, after a certain time, like you know, you cut your losses and go home or whatever. Or more likely, you run out of money and you go home, whatever. Um, so you know, war was fairly limited because it was uh, equal. It was there was economic calculation involved. Like there, there was cost that you had to calculate and the benefits that you might get and so on. If you conquered sort of a territory that no one wanted, that didn't have much wealth or whatever, that I mean, you you weren't going to do that uh, unless it costs like really really cheap and. Uh, for the most part, you know, like war uh, was limited for that reason. Uh, what changed with fiat money and specifically World War One was that, uh, you know, wars became much more ideological. So World War One and to some degree the Civil War uh, in the United States, uh, you know, they were ideological in the sense that it wasn't for economic benefit. It was ideological. There was a principle at stake and the uh, victor had to have total victory uh, in order to do that. So uh, during the Civil War, it was to keep the union together. It wasn't an economic calculation. It wasn't the North saying, you know what, like we, we need to conquer the South in order to have more resources and so on. That 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 was, of course, true in the sense that you, you would be able to produce more economic output, having more territory and so on. But, you know, I mean, the post-war years and the reconstruction and all that, like it, it was like the Civil War cost so much in money and lives and so on that it didn't make any economic sense whatsoever. It, you, you reduce capacity significantly as a result of that war. 
uh, and not, uh, you know, didn't, didn't gain anything. So economically, it, it, it wasn't that. Uh, but, you know, the North did conquer the South and it was it was total war. There was no negotiated settlement, large part because it was ideological. Like, uh, you know, Lincoln wasn't going to stop unless, uh, you know, the South was completely subdued um, and there wasn't going to be a negotiated settlement because it was ideological in nature. Similar with uh, World War One. Woodrow Wilson was actually the one that you know coined the term. You know we need to make the world safe for democracy. It was, uh, it was I. It was an ideological war against sort of monarchies and so on. And you know he was said to be absolutely thrilled uh, when the Russian Revolution happened in the middle of World War One because uh, Russia was part of the, uh, but part of the Allies, right? Like it was uh, Great Britain, France, and Russia, and U.S. came in later. Uh, but they they were the one monarchy, and they were, he was glad that you know it would be sort of like the you know semi democratic powers that would uh, that would ultimately prevail and so on, and that 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 was his thing. Um, so it, it becomes uh, this very uh, you know when you have fiat money, uh, you know it becomes ideological and becomes a total war uh, instead of being an economic calculation because. You know, when you have fiat money, you don't you don't need to go get other resources. You have the resources of your entire population and you can grab them anytime you want through inflation. So, uh, you know, there, there, the lack of economic calculation is what uh, causes uh, such evil in uh, in war when when you have fiat money. Um, and that's that's why it's so bad. And, you know, when you when you bring Bitcoin back, sound money, hard money back. Um, you know, it, it does become more of an economic calculation. And, you know, given how just amazing trade is and how global trade is and how profitable trade is, uh, I, I, I think you get uh, a lot better behavior, especially from, uh, you know, governments uh, and much less war as a result. All right. Uh, hello, Jimmy. Robert Breedlove says that proof of stake will eventually self-destruct. What is your take on that? Some say that mining pools will destroy proof of work and do not make uh, and do not make uh, proof of work decentralized anymore. What is your take on this? Well, let's answer the second one first. Uh, you have lots of mining pools and they do decide on what block it is right now. And that's based on Stratum V1. Stratum V2, which some pools are running, uh, the miner, uh, the individual miner gets to decide on the block. So it's not centralizing in the least. Uh, it, it's just uh, sort of pooling for the sake of variance reduction and payouts. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't I, I think it's uh, it's completely decentralized because miners can leave any uh, leave pools whenever they want and join other pools. And they do that all the time. Um, so I, I don't think there's anything like that. Uh, proof of stake will definitely self-destruct because it's an oligarchy. It's whoever has the most money gets to make more money. And they're, they're, they're the ones that keep getting richer at the expense of everybody that's poor. And if that sounds familiar, it should. It's exactly how a central bank backed fiat money works. Um, and you'll you'll have Cantillon effect winners and so on. Um, in a sense, like it's already proof of stake because anything that had a pre-mine because they they are the ones that are most interested in that uh, succeeding and so on. And uh, they they've basically printed a bunch of money for themselves, but they did it beforehand instead of afterwards. Um, and, you know, that that's the sad reality of, uh, of proof of stake. It's it's not just at all. 
what's under your cowboy hat, Jimmy? Um, just my head. I, I wish I could say like um, a speech or something like that. Apparently, that's where Lincoln kept his speeches and things like that. Uh, but no, I don't I don't have anything under my cowboy hat. Uh, should there be session in the United States? Secession, I think, is uh, is what this person is asking. Um, yeah, I think so. I think um, a lot of states are way too big and there's no reason for them to be. I think we should try lots of different um, systems and see what works out and let the market decide instead of, you know, uh, a few powerful people that happen to be in the right positions at the right time. So, you know, I, that that's my hope anyway. All right, let's look at the next question. Uh, if you were starting Bitcoin related dev today, would you get into core dev, Lightning Network, Layer 3? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, it really depends on the opportunities that are present. I think, uh, you know, right now, a lot, of, a lot of effort is going into sort of like running your own node, Lightning node and things like that. So places like Umbral, Start9, those, those things look very interesting to me because it does... I think it's sort of ultimately going to be the base layer of uh, uh, of Web 3.0, a really decentralized internet where you don't have third part trusted third parties and you can serve content to each other, sort of without uh, w without anybody in the middle. And you can only do that if you're running servers. And the these are sort of like the natural servers that people are running, um, and they're going to get more feature rich over time. So. Um, you know, I, I would love to see that develop and that's probably where I would be, um, you know, I mean, be, besides sort of like, uh, you know, making sure that your Bitcoins are secure and things like that. Uh, and I think that's always going to be um, something that people need to work on. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I say that that would be it. Uh, all right. Thoughts on how the distribution of Bitcoin will unfold and evolve. Are we ri at risk of ending up in a similar place where there is an unequal distribu distribution of value in society? Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I think you're always going to have an unequal distribution uh, like that's just nature. Like there's never equal distribution of anything in nature. Like we don't have the equal, uh, an equal number of roses growing all over the world. It's. Uh, concentrated in certain places and grow better in certain places and so on um, and you know uh, that that's okay that's 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 a good thing uh, it's it's not about like equality of outcome it's about equality of opportunity and I think Bitcoin offers equality of opportunity uh, and not uh, and like looking at distribution I think is looking from the wrong end it's all about opportunity and if you have opportunity that's fine I would be interested to hear any thoughts you have on finding a church with principles and views you respect. I really, I have really appreciated you sharing your views on Bitcoin, natural law, and lots of other topics. Yeah, I mean, this has been kind of a struggle for me because uh, the the church I was attending, um, you know, started promoting uh, a lot of the coronavirus stuff, which I didn't like, and then started promoting some of the Black Lives Matter stuff, which I, I, I didn't agree with. I, I don't think it's appropriate for church and things like that. Uh, so, I mean, finding a church is going to be generally a difficult thing. Um, but I have found one heuristic that's pretty good, which is, you know, are they requiring masks or not? Um, and if they're requiring masks, then I, I think they're more uh, subservient to the state than to God. And I, I, you know, that that tells me that they're more like competing to be better rule followers than everybody else, which honestly is kind of like Pharisee ish um, rather than, you know, 
serving God, uh, you know, in, in deed and intent and, and so on. So, yeah, I, I, I think for finding a church, uh, that, that's the criteria I've been using. Uh, that said, I haven't found one and I, I've been looking for over a year now. So, um, you know, like a lot of churches are very, you know, masky and, you know, sort of rule following and stuff. And yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's going to be difficult, but I would encourage you to keep looking until you find something that is sort of like uh, a church that is dedicated to doing what God says instead of what the state says. Uh, what do you personally hope you can do related to Bitcoin fixes this? I hope to bring sound money to the world. And I think getting on a Bitcoin standard fixes a lot of, a lot of stuff. And that's what this podcast has been about. Um, and, you know, bringing that about, whether through writing books or teaching people Bitcoin development or, you know, debunking altcoins or whatever, or convincing people that this really is the more moral money. Um, you know, that that's that's what I'm hoping to do is convince people that um, that Bitcoin is it. All right. Uh, will NFTs be on Bitcoin? Uh, there already have been uh, NFTs and that this started in 2013. Um, and you know, like people act like NFTs are brand new. They're not. They've they've been around. They have no value. This like NFTs are like the ultimate simulacrum. They they have no binding to the thing that they supposedly represent. Uh, so yeah, I, I I I don't think they're useful in Bitcoin. Can Bitcoin help prevent religious ideological wars? Um, I mean, if you mean by that sort of like the total wars of the twentieth century, which were ideal. Uh, uh, ideological in nature uh then yeah i think so uh like if you mean by religious ideological i think you mean maybe like protestant versus catholic or something like that in various countries and i i think that uh if you actually study them uh the case for those is way overblown a uh, vast majority of wars are actually about economics <laughs> about conquering one another uh, for some economic reason or for hatreds or for historical past things and things like that. It's it's not about religion at all. Um, there there are some, of course, but they're, they're a tiny minority. vast majority of things are because of economics. And you should really study history before making a claim like that, if that's what you meant. In the context of private Bitcoin sales, is it possible that private networks of people, whales, high net worth institutions, could limit equal access to Bitcoin? Do we need a commitment to sell publicly? Um, I mean, I, I suppose they could, uh, but the thing about like Bitcoin is that it's fairly liquid. So if you want to just go buy market, buy a bunch of it, you, you can. Um, and the only reason you would do private sales is so that you don't get too much slippage if you're selling and hopefully you get a slightly better deal if you're buying than, you know, having slippage on the upside. So. And like these only matter if you're buying in large amounts. So like, you know, talking about equal access there doesn't really make sense because for anyone that's poorer, then you're just going to pay the market price and that's uh, the fair price and you, you don't have to worry about slippage one way or the other. And really all these whales are trying to do is get, uh, you know, the, the price that's market based and uh, for a large amount, that's it. Any plans to add to your programming Bitcoin book? Eventually I want to do a programming wallet book and after that maybe a programming lightning book. Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, slow going, though, because because uh, there's a lot to cover and standards are changing. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll have a second edition of programming Bitcoin as well. But uh, but yeah, that's the plan at the moment. 
all right, I already answered that question. What will Bitcoin UX look like in 10 years? Great question. I, I don't know. I wish I knew because in a sense, um, you're going to see uh, Bitcoin UX change and it'll be based on like what people like and what makes sense to people and what sort of paradigm people come up with uh, that that are the easiest to understand. And that's going to take some time to get. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think I, I like if you asked me 20 years ago, what will uh, what will like cell phones look like? I, I would have said, I don't know. Like I, I, I imagine they'll be pretty slick looking. But um, but, you know, like people think it's obvious after the fact, but beforehand, it's very hard to think of uh, good U UX. Bitcoin ETF pros and cons. Uh, the, the obvious pros are that there will be more people interested and um, certainly a lot of institutions will kind of have to buy it, which means that the price will go up. But the cons are that it uh, it's not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And, you know, you can do weird things with it like gold ETFs do, which is, you know, sell, you know, Bitcoin that isn't there. And this is a way of fractional reserve lending out Bitcoin that doesn't exist. So you can, um, you know, sort of have that. But, you know, uh, you know, we'll we'll see. It depends on their transparency. And like uh, because Bitcoin has proof of reserves and things like that, you know, it, it very well could be managed in a way that the cons are sort of negated a little bit. If someone wanted to transition to an engineering job in the Bitcoin Lightning ecosystem, what curriculum would you recommend to learn? Programming Bitcoin chain code seminars, mastering Lightning Network, what next steps would you take after doing some of these materials? Well, you know, um, usually I'll, uh, after I teach, I tell people like go, go contribute to open source, and uh, and you know like that that that's a good way to sort of like bootstrap and show people what you can do and stuff like that, and then go you know apply to some of these jobs uh, that that are out there, and if it's like with a company that has an open API or something like that, use their API to build something you know like that's that's what they want to see and that you're comfortable with what they're building and yeah I, I would say go and uh, and do that if that's that's where you want to be. Uh, all right. Uh, is a token issued on liquid a shitcoin? Yes, no, why? I, I mean, it, this might be controversial, but I mean, it's it's a completely centralized thing if you're issuing it on any platform, including liquid. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's at least an altcoin. Um, you know, is it a scam necessarily? I don't know. I, it depends on what you're using it for. If it's like if you're very clear about what what it's useful for, and you're not like doing a pre-sale or pre-mining a bunch or something like that, then, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a scam. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't necessarily think you should be releasing, like, coins, uh, you know, new coins on these things, um, you know, without a really, really good reason. What is our defensive position against Muzero? I don't know what that is. Is Bitcoin... Its best feature is that it doesn't have CEO and boards. Yes, it's it's decentralized. It doesn't have a center. That that is the big one. Um, do you think Satoshi Lite's Litecoin remains a testnet for Bitcoin's future features, truly making the silver to Bitcoin's gold? If so, why and how? I don't think it is. Um, I mean, it did for that one particular thing with SegWit, but they haven't updated their code base to keep up with all of the Bitcoin stuff. And I don't think they have enough engineering power to integrate Taproot, for example, and, you know, activate it on their network before it goes on Bitcoins. Um, you know, they, they had a small role in the 2017 era. I, I don't think uh, they're going to continue in that role 
uh, or uh, you know at, at least the past four years have shown that they 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 don't and you know they were they were gonna like do some confidential transactions and stuff like that I you know I, as far as I can tell they don't have enough developers or anything like that um, do you like pineapple on pizza back when I ate pizza I did but I don't eat pizza or pineapples anymore so there you go is lightning network integral part of Bitcoin or just one of many applications built the top if the latter doesn't mean that uh, potentially anyone can build a competing app um, well Lightning is a layer on top of Bitcoin, and I think you really need to study Lightning before, uh, you know, asking this question. Because the second one, uh, like it, it's, it doesn't really make sense. Um, it is an application built on top in the sense that you know you can uh, do different things on the Lightning network, and you could potentially come up with some other way of doing it. I think state chains and side chains are are, are different uh, ways to do that, and you can definitely build apps on those as well. Uh, but yeah, you, you need to understand both uh, before asking this question and understanding like there uh, you, you have to be fairly creative to come up with something like that. What happened to guys like Roger Vale, Ver, Vitalik and Trace Mayer? They are all uh, they are all on the original Bitcoin documentaries and now they're they've abandoned Bitcoin. There are so many others that have left as well. Yeah, I mean, the siren song of all coins is always there. And this is something that I write about in my newsletter uh, a, a while ago. So if you're if you're a non-technical founder or non-technical non OG, you're going to be tempted away at some point by riches. And, you know, uh, you think of yourself as a genius for finding this asset that's thousand X or whatever. Um, and you think that you can do that for other things. And that's uh, that's sort of the uh, the trap that Roger Ver and Trace Mayer and uh, even Vitalik to some degree have fallen into. Um, so, yeah. When, uh, all right, so I already answered the quantum computing question. How does uh, borrowing against your Bitcoin work? So basically the way it works is uh, you borrow some amount of dollars and you put Bitcoin as your collateral and you have to over collateralize. Um, typically, like I think most people do like 200% or something like that. So you put up two Bitcoin, you get a $50,000 loan, something like that. Um, and the loan has an interest rate, say it's like nine or 10%, 10% to, Keep it simple. So at the end of one year, you owe, uh, you know, uh, $55,000. Now you can sell some of the, your collateral to pay for it, or you could roll over that loan and you would need to, assuming the Bitcoin price stays the same, you would need to um, add more Bitcoin to get another loan to roll over. Um, otherwise, uh, if Bitcoin went up by say like 100% and it's now worth $200,000, uh, you can take out a bigger loan or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of ways in which that can work. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of people that take advantage of this, but, you know, it, it's actual money or dollars that somebody else is uh, giving up an uh, uh, opportunity cost for you to loan it. So it's not ex nihilo loans like uh, mortgages and so on. Uh, so it, it's a actually a much more honest borrowing. If you want to get into a Bitcoin related job, uh, but you neither know finance nor coding, what do you recommend? Should one try to learn to code? Where are the opportunities? Well, it depends on your particular skills, right? Like if you are an accountant, I would try to look for, 
you know, uh, an accounting firm that does uh, Bitcoin related stuff. I know you asked for like non-finance background, but if you're a marketer, I would look for opportunities where you can market Bitcoin, right? And plenty of that out there. There's a lot of podcasters that are looking for good marketing. Uh, if you're if you're good at that or whatever, um, you know, if you're if you're in sales, you know, go go find uh, a Bitcoin com- a Bitcoin sales job. Uh, there, there's lots of those. And if you're you know, wh- whatever it is that you happen to be good at, find the cross section between that and Bitcoin and go and find opportunities in that regard. Um, and, you know, a lot of these companies are hiring, so they need all sorts of roles. And it's not just finance and coding. Um, but if you happen to be good at coding, then yeah, go 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 for it, and that's uh, that's a nice way to get in, and you'll probably get compensated very well for it. Can you talk about nation-state attack vector specifically, the potential of a state-sponsored fifty-one percent attack, regulatory attacks more potent than the infrastructure bill? Seeing how two guy crypto Twitter rattled, is Bitcoin or crypto Twitter's understanding of that threat weak? Um, so the state sponsor 51% attack, I already sort of debunked in the empty block attack. Um, there, there are sort of like game theoretical things that the state can do to try to mitigate that. But then like there are things that we can do as a community and so on. So it, it's, it's kind of a back and forth thing. Uh, and I would encourage you to go read that first. Uh, regulatory attacks are more interesting, uh, but, uh, you know, in a sense, as soon as a state actor behaves badly, I think a lot of the Bitcoin holders just kind of leave um, or go go underground or in the black market or something like that. Uh, so in a sense, like it doesn't matter that much. I mean, it just may, might make it kind of inconvenient for the people that are actually owning Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself is not going to get affected that much. Um, what is the state of DeFi on top of Bitcoin and what are some interesting projects? Uh, I mean, I, I really hate that word decentralized finance because centralized it all over the place. I would say that, uh, you know, DLCs are the closest thing to what you're talking about. And there's a lot of companies working on that. Um, you know, it's atomic finance, short bits and uh, several others are working on, on those. And, you know, they, they have some interesting things. Are you down uh, to help us start selling these? I, I, I guess this is like, you know, all coin branded toilet paper. Uh, I don't I don't I don't think so. I, don't, I, I use a bidet and like use uh, very few sheets of toilet paper when I do go to the toilet. So, yeah. How do you view Bitcoin's role in ensuring decentralized data storage and ownership? Um, I mean, the I, I don't think you need decentralized data storage, right? Like. You, you can you there are like like backing up your data is kind of a solved problem, right? Like you you put it on a hard drive, put it in someplace safe and or, you know, you use online encrypted backups and all sorts of places. There There's a lot of ways in which you can back up your data. So, you know, I, I don't think you need to, quote unquote, solve that. Uh, it's already solved. And I don't think Bitcoin necessarily has a role other than maybe paying for it. Uh, why are Bitcoin guys Trump supporters? Uh, does crypto automatically associate with fascism? Uh, this is obviously a troll, but I think a lot of Bitcoin guys are Trump supporters because he's less less authoritarian and less pro-war than the other ones. Um, that's it. And I don't think he's a fascist. Uh, I don't think you understand what fascism means. All right. All right. Let's see here. Let me block this one guy. All right. Why do multiple guests speak your name to you over and over during your interview? Because um, they just like doing that. That's how they speak. Um, what incentives does a country uh, on the Bitcoin standard have to stay on said standard? Uh, well, 
because it's really hard money uh, and uh, that's what the populace wants to use and they might be overthrown uh, if they don't stay on the Bitcoin standard. There you go. Uh, why wouldn't said country abuse the trust of its investors by doing a repeat of the gold standard going into fiat because you can hold your own keys, right? Now, this is one of the wonderful things about Bitcoin is that you can possess it without taking a security risk. With gold, if you had a 400 ounce gold bar at home, then it was possible for a thief to go steal it. Um, you can have you know, a treasure in your house, but unless the thief happens to be a hardware hacker and knows your passcode or something like that, you're, it's not likely to be stolen. So it's, it's not worth like physically stealing, right? Like, and it's going to be very difficult to get it out of a person. Not that it's impossible, but it's much more difficult than gold is. Um, so th this is why, you know, uh, Bitcoin is a very different animal than gold. Um, it's non-physical nature and, you know, multi-sig capability and ability to back up and things like that make it very difficult to steal. Um, and that means that, you know, people can possess it themselves and make it a bearer instrument that people actually use as a bearer instrument. So, um, you know, that that's why it's uh, it's going to be hard for a country to abuse it because there's no like sort of central party to trust. I mean, there, there still will be and people will get burned by that, but they'll learn their lesson. Uh, starting point for software developers to begin uh, for Bitcoin Core Dev. Read my book, Programming Bitcoin. Is there anyone building cybersecurity products for crypto? Um, yeah, tons of tons of them. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would say hardware wallets are definitely that. Um, and yeah, there's uh, probably, uh, you know, like I, I would say Unchained Capital, Casa, th those are sort of cybersecurity products as well. So. Yeah. All right. That I think is about all the questions. This went way longer than I thought. I, uh, I'm seeing at like uh, an hour and 24 minutes. Uh, and that's OK, because I really love answering your questions. And uh, I, I think I'll have to do these a little more frequently because that was really fun. All right. Fiat Delenda S. This song is done. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I am a proud advisor of a company that is working to achieve security for the Bitcoin network. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or Bitcoin native financial solutions, learn more at unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. I can be found on Twitter at Jimmy Song, and my website is programmingbitcoin.com. Until next time, Fiat Delenda Est.